State of Sports Media from Sports and Society. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle again this week. How you doing, man? I am doing well. I'm in Danville, Kentucky today, home of your center college. My uh, prestigious alma mater that no one has ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just had some, there's probably some joke in there about two white guys from small liberal arts universities that no one's ever heard of having a liberal sports podcast. I don't know about you, but I will always be slightly bitter towards Berea because people know Berea more than center, even though I'm 100% convinced we're a better school than they are. Yeah, that might be. I mean, yeah, I centers on a lot of those like top 100 liberal arts lists. Yeah, but they're like the one that. that nobody looks at on that list. So. <laughs> <laughs> like Kentucky, I'm not going to go to Kentucky. Fuck that. <laughs> um, that's funny. Yeah, but Samford, I'm going to argue with. I'm going to argue that Samford's even lesser known. I don't know. You guys got like one or two football players that came from there, right? So. We do, yeah, and I still think of like they're a team that like our generation. When you meet someone our age, and say Samford, they're like, "Didn't they make the NCAA tournament when we were kids?" Like that's all we got. <laughs> hey, I mean, all we guys, we beat Harvard back in the nineteen uh, aughts. <laughs> right? Yeah, Center loves that. Um, but. What kind of sports have you been paying attention to? I got to say, so there's two things um, that I've really been paying attention to this week. One is the Women's World Cup, and I got a hot take on that. Um, But before we get to that, I just want to say the Cricket World Cup has been amazing. Uh, For some reason, I find myself really rooting for Pakistan, which is a weird place to be in in some ways. Um, I kind of want to hear where that's coming from. I don't – I just – they had they've their past two matches have been incredible yeah. chases. Um, yeah, like yesterday, you know, uh, there's this really odd thing to be watching a sporting event between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yes, um, but then also to see Afghanistan really have a nice uh, uh, batting innings and then come really close to holding off Pakistan, only to have them score. You know. Uh, significant runs in the last five overs to come back and win. Uh, just exciting run chases. Yeah. I think that's been uh, – the first couple of weeks were not as exciting in the run chase category, and so these past few weeks have been more exciting, including today we should have a fun one. Um, we've got uh, England at 250-something for three with a f- uh, nine overs left, which should be really fun to watch India try and chase that down. Yeah. Yep. This is the match I've been most looking forward to, I think. Well, it's also interesting. You know, when I uh, I watched the first 30, 25 overs and India was just, or England was destroying. And so it's been fascinating to see India kind of come back into it the fat last few overs and what's going to happen in these last 10. Um, so. I actually didn't look to see, did Australia or New Zealand win yesterday? Australia won handily. Really? Um, yeah, that they put out. Uh, it was interesting. They only put out like two fifty, I think, or something. So I so I watched the first maybe fifteen overs, and their like four stars all got out for like less than yeah. twenty. Yeah. So they went out two forty three for nine. Yeah. Um, 
And New Zealand could only muster 140, 157 oh, wow. uh, yeah. in the chase, yeah. I can't believe Australia lasted 50 overs. I know, yeah. Well, it's Those middle order batsmen, it's a really fascinating thing. Like when you, those big yeah. guys go out and you have to maintain for yeah. 30 overs. Right. Um, anyway, okay. so here's my hot take on the U.S. women's national team. All right. Uh, I wound, my, wound up kind of uh, low-key hoping that France would win the game this week. Interesting. Um, and, and only because it goes back to my uh, pure aesthetic of the game um, that I feel like there were way more skillful players for France than there were for the U.S. Mm. Um, and, like, I, I love Megan Rapinoe, mm-hmm. um, but... I just, I, I don't know. I don't see the skill on the ball with the U.S. players. I don't see the vision in passing that right. France played two or three balls, and I was like, oh, my goodness, that's incredible. And the right. U.S., I never felt like uh, did anything on that par. Right. There's something, too, that always affects me of when a home country is likable. Mm. And I'm always struck by how powerful of a sentiment that can create of a, around a team of that they are capable of kind of conjuring my attention and my allegiance. So I actually like was semi depressed that France lost, um, yet also wasn't rooting for France to win. Weirdly, yeah, like I it's that was the same kind of place. Like I didn't I didn't want the U.S. to lose. Mm-hmm. But it, it didn't feel fair to me that France wound up losing that game when I thought mm-hmm. that they bossed most of it. Mm-hmm. It shows the difference. I mean, the U.S. just had, you know, two players in attack that were really more potent than France did, uh, mm-hmm. even though the midfield, you know, very similar in some ways to, um, oh gosh, how am I forgetting this? Who won the last World Cup? The men's World Cup. Um um, I never. I was actually just telling McKay this the other <laughs> this day that I never thing. remember these things. Um, um, gosh, I was because it was them versus Croatia in the final, right? Uh, da, 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 da. This is embarrassing. I don't think it is. I like literally do this all the time. <laughs> Let's see here. Yeah, so France. France won. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was France versus Croatia in the final. Yeah. Uh, and it, this game reminded me of that in some ways because Croatia's midfield was vastly superior to France's. Right. Um, and it always felt sad that they couldn't, they didn't have the top end, that Mandzukic was just never going to be the guy take them over the hurdle in the same way I just didn't feel like the forwards for France were doing justice to the work that their midfielders were doing mm-hmm. what about the fact that the uh, Spain game was won on two penalties does that affect the legitimacy of the win for you at all no um, it affects the enjoyment of the game yeah um, I mean they're pretty clear penalties yeah um, and, and this is part of it too, is that I, um, it frustrates me to watch this U S team because I feel like there are players, better players that could liven up the game. Like I was dying for them to put Pew in instead of Kristen press, uh, towards mm-hmm. the end, because I felt like 
pace at that point in the game would have killed, uh, and they just didn't go with that. They went with um, these players that are more established, and I just kind of uh, I wish there was a little more risk taking involved in in some of that decision making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then again, I can't. You know, Jill Ellis does an incredible job, and it's not on me to call her out for not uh, whatever decisions she's going to make in that setting. I know. I, I I feel much the same and would even say like I have been extremely impressed with the overall presentation that they have made at this World Cup. Uh, just kind of like top to bottom, like carrying themselves mm-hmm. with as much confidence as they had and have. And then my, I mean, my story from this past week is, is exactly the same as yours in the sense that it's the story is Megan Rapinoe. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't think there's a cooler person on the planet today uh, than Megan Rapinoe uh, for how she handled all of that. I felt it was just inspiring. Um, well, there's definitely, it feels like a big uh, FU attitude coming from the team, which is really um, exciting in some ways. Like, yeah. um, I don't know, they've they've developed something. I love watching... I don't know how, how she's captured my attention, but Kelly O'Hara seems to have become my favorite player on the team, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because she's just so fired up yep. all the time. And I love seeing that um, passion in there. And it's something that I, I also feel like I love on some level because it's something that we often would refer to as unladylike, p- perhaps, yeah. um, which I'm yep. just like, I, I want it to be a big F you to everybody out there. It's like, <laughs> right. the shit, yep. what is this? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I I guess there's just something about it that has an air of uh, activism isn't the right word, but uh emblematic of that underlying call for those that are behind to catch up. Mhm. And that just it's inspiring. It it it, it um it causes one to kind of like inch up in their chair a little bit, I think. And that, that is just so cool. Um, well, I think it also puts paid to so many of the, the, um, the, the hypocrisy that we see in different places, whether it be, you know, we as the U S want to support meritocracy and yet here we have it. Um, and we see that when you do it right, um, women are just as capable, if not more capable, of bringing excitement and joy from sports, and yet that's something that we don't uh, really want to believe in on some level, and so we don't support that. And it's just, uh, I love seeing those kind of, you know, these people that are just doing their jobs, but also doing it in a somewhat subversive way and something that um, changes how we view things. Exactly. And it gives me faith that sports can exist at that high of a level that we're like capable of of this. We're capable mm-hmm. of doing it all better, you mm-hmm. know. That it doesn't have to be the CEO of FIFA asking the best women's player in the world to twerk. Like, <laughs> like there's a there's there's a version of the sport where Megan Rapinoe is at the top and the most powerful. Um, or you know just the the uh, overall context around the whole sport can be more of a Megan Rapino type way of being as opposed to what it has mainly been for the past however many hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder, as a segue, I think, and you may have more to say on that, but if 
p- trying to pay attention to barstool sports is uh, <laughs> played a role in how we've been watching it. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> um, yes and no. Like it's really interesting. I think. Um, uh, so, for those of you we haven't introduced this, but barstools are spotlight media company or media source for the week uh, we neither of us was looking forward to this i think and i think we can both articulate that it's been worse than we anticipated would you agree mm-hmm. with that yeah absolutely um and so uh but what has kind of surprised me in some ways is how um like there's still i forget who it was but one of the women's players was on their main podcast um and it was just like this is an interesting turn of events in some ways um, mm. that they've become so pervasive and also just the complexity of it in some ways and that we're going to give them, spoiler alert, a very low grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there are people and parts of the organization that still, I hate even to use this kind of phrasing, but represent a powerful voice in the industry at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did I think about their, you know, I tried to listen to a fair amount of their, pardon my take, which is their kind of flagship program mm-hmm. and what I think brings in the most revenue for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't do very much of it, but it's clear um, that I feel like those guys involved there are not the worst of the worst, and yet mm-hmm. they're involved with something that is pretty heinous, um, and yet they're also doing something that is, I think, relevant and interesting in some ways on that, just that very basic core level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe to add to that as a somewhat of an introduction, I don't know if you've came across the piece by Will Leach, I think is how you pronounce his last name. The guy that started Deadspin uh, about Barstool. He wrote an article for New York Magazine about Barstool Sports. Did you see that? Uh, I read a number, but I don't know if I read that particular one. Okay. Yeah, he was... Uh, it, it's a pretty interesting thing to read because by the time he left Deadspin, as he describes it, and it was my experience with Deadspin as well, Deadspin was looking a whole lot like Barstool Sports mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, and he kind of articulates it and he's very kind to himself. But, you know, he just kind of looked up one day and he was like, whoa, this is not what we were aiming to do. And the aim was to push back against the massive media conglomerates that controlled the sports narratives. And so, like, on its face, right, that that space, that intent, uh, even you and I would say, like, that's kind of where we are to some extent. Mm -hmm. right um and then where you go from there i think says uh, a lot about your your moral ethical and um value values as you approach the world so that's kind of how i'm coming at barstool i think is that they exist in a space that a lot of us believe in and they've gone a direction that's pretty pathetic which raises the question for me of whether or not there is a that space can exist without devolving into these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cause I can't think of an example of one that has maintained 
um, and stays above the fray. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can't either. I mean, once you get that big and I think you're pulling in that revenue and I can't imagine what it's like to, or I can't imagine, I guess, but what it's like when those, um, those financing groups that have millions of dollars and say, if you do this, this, and this, all of you are millionaires tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you've just been like a blogger in your studio apartment somewhere for like five years. Yeah. Yeah. But. Well, what, um, uh, how would you define Barstool? How would I define Barstool? Uh, so Barstool started as a blog and I was going to ask you the first time, what it was like the first time you came across Barstool. Uh, and I would also be interested to hear just kind of like how it has, um, what it has been in your, uh, kind of per, or like just what you've seen of the sports world over the last 10 years, what kind of role has Barstool played? Um, but, um, yeah, so it's because it started as a blog, I think they hold to a little bit of that early internet blog sort of way of doing things. Um, but in short, I think Barstool is exploiting a trope of how we digest sports in America and that being like the most insidious version of toxic masculinity possible. Uh, and so it's a space for those that are heinously toxic in their masculinity to go feel affirmed about that. Um, and so in that way, the the website is just uh, filled with pretty uh, shallow, thoughtless, pointless ways of approaching the actual sports. And then in in between the spaces where they are talking about sports, they're filling it with smut and clatter and fodder for things that are pretty disgusting as far as toxic masculinity goes. Um, and I, I think it's embodied in their tagline that has persisted for since their beginning, which is that, what is it, Saturdays are for boys, uh, I think yeah. is their tagline. Um, so, yeah, they're, I, I, I even, I guess I'll say here at the top, too, I, I even had to like kind of write a bunch over the past two weeks about how I was feeling about it. Hmm. And so I'm already regretting that my description right now wasn't articulate enough, but I think it's that I feel that way is somewhat emblematic of how awful it is. And I'll say here too, that like on the first day that we started doing barstool, I was like at lunch and like was feeling bad and feeling down and it was really easy to pinpoint that trying to read Barstool in the morning got me really sad. You know, it like really puts me in a bad mood to go to that website. So yeah. I don't, how would you describe it or where, what else needs to be added alongside that? Well, I think just to build off of that, um, and to kind of share, you know, I, uh, I had not had very much experience with Barstool before, Mm-hmm. Uh, we did this, you know, I was familiar with their part of my take podcast, which I mentioned already, which, uh, I think is the most innocuous and, uh, easiest way into the bigger picture. That's probably how they do that. Mm-hmm. So that's still vaguely offensive and, um, pushing boundaries and all that kind of stuff, but it is, it feels more sports related. And I was just shocked 
how little actual sports there is in their uh in their space right um, and then uh, it is you know there's a number of things that we could point to but uh, you know perhaps some of the easiest things to tip off are like it's like a uh, it feels like a fraternity in some ways, um, yeah. like the worst kind of fraternity. Everybody's got a nickname, and they all publish under their nicknames. Right. Um, they, um, it very much is still a blog site, so there's almost no, as I can understand it, editorial oversight. Um, right. Apparently, they had to fire somebody this past week because he wrote about um, someone that later wound up dead, um, and... Uh, Posted it without the like people's knowledge, and then took it down without their knowledge. So the fact that you can do that uh, just leads to all kinds of craziness. Um, mm-hmm. Further, it's you know they've built themselves into the stars of the show, right? Um, and so it's about when you go to the site, it's about the people. It's not about the the sports or the stories or anything else, right? Um, which is just none of the people are interesting. So um, it makes it a very uninteresting place to spend any time. Um, And then just the, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this guy more, but the founder, Dave Portney, is just a pretty terrible human being, it seems like. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. That their business model is to appeal to white fraternity brothers is so phenomenal (laughs) you know that 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 space exists uh is sad and depressing and um uh, upsetting but that it is something that is can be so publicly uh profitable uh is maybe you know just um more evidence of of how powerful these people are and how powerful that space is for someone that wants to walk into it um you know a little bit of money and whiteness still rules the world it seems like sometimes yeah i i I think it's worth pointing out too and i'm still like trying to get all my thoughts together on this on what this thing is because it is uh so gnarly and upsetting uh but i read one article that call it the embodiment of rape culture Hmm. Um, and i think that's an important outlook on it is that what these guys are exploiting is that which enables and helps rape culture persist Uh, and so if that's your business model that's that's pretty sad (laughs) well i mean and just to be fully um in on that kind of perspective they have a running thing which is kind of when I realized that this was not going to go the way that I thought it was going to go was that they have a um, running bit on ranking the teachers from teacher sex scandals, um, which is, you know, this is statutory rape. So it's the absolute essence of what you're talking about, but they're turning it around um, and objectifying everything about it in a way that they're using then for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just totally despicable. Yep. Uh, and this is where, uh, what you know, this guy. This is one of the things I wanted to dig into with this. It was this guy Jerry Thornton, um, 
So he, if you look at his picture, he's like, oh, this is like a New England sports guy. He writes about NFL stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you see that half of his articles are about women and sex scandals and what women look like and other all this other stuff. And it's like, what the hell is going on? And it just, in some ways for me, was the perfect uh, encapsulation of the fact that this is uh, a sports, this is a... I believe you use the word smut, a smut site um, mm-hmm. masquerading as a sports site. Unapologetically. Yes. I mean, preferring it and loving it and seeing how much they can get out of it and increasing the space for it to happen as often and as in many ways as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. But should we give them some scores? Let's give him some scores, yeah. What have you got for quality of the articles? Uh, did we come up with four? Four, yep. I actually kind of feel like that's high now. <laughs> I didn't read one that like made me like, oh, that's great. Um, I can think of one I read about free agency getting started. Uh, and it was probably the most sports-centric I read on the whole site the whole week. Um, but other than that, I can't think of one that I got to the end of or even made it to the end of and was like, that was good. So, I, I mean, I guess we can stick with four for now, but I just want to point out that it's pretty awful journalism. It is. I mean, they do have a few... Um, I mean, there's some things in here as I'm scrolling down now that are, you know... Um, and I think it's it's interesting too because they're downplaying the stuff that is not necessarily good journalism, but the stuff that we might read right. otherwise. So I mean, like, right. there's an article here about, um, you know, how Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard aren't going to sign with the Knicks, um, right. but it's written. The headline is written in such a snarky way that it puts somebody like us off of reading it, even though that's something that we might want to, you know look into and the article itself is not the worst thing in the world and so i think there's part of that as well that they're built such a a culture of um you know just yeah stupidness <laughs> well it's it's like even in their writing they're pursuing that which is bro culture 101 which mm-hmm. is the the most power is given to he that can say the most outlandish thing and get away with it, mm-hmm. right? Or even not get away with it. Even if you get in trouble in the at, at the start, you're probably going to get away with it eventually. But nonetheless, it's, oh, my God, is he going to say that? Every single thing about the writing on the website made me think of that, of that it was the Covcath kid uh, in Washington, D.C., Mm-hmm. It's the same thing of like who's going to be willing to like stand up and put their face out in front of someone in such a obnoxious way, and so it's always pursuing that, uh, which doesn't make for great writing in my opinion. No, I mean no, but, that's the thing is there's no like I mentioned earlier there's no editorial oversight uh, or yeah. doesn't appear to be any, um, and it's just uh, it just winds up in you know crap. Yep. Yep. Well, there also feels like there's definitely a, you know, I guess like I keep comparing this to the ringer in some ways because I think they operate in the same space to some degree. Yeah. Um, I think they're both making 
a lot of money off their podcast and the websites and uh, stuff are different. But there's definitely one of the big differences feels like um, Barstool has definitely got a quantity over quality aspect to it. Right. So a lot of these writers are putting out multiple, you know, three things a day even, um, right. which you just can't write that well that right. much. Right. Um, yeah. What about the voices that are on the website? Is there much diversity? No. Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. And I think that that really comes back to... Um, we see you can see that in who the faces are, but even more you see it in the tone um, right. that is just so consistent throughout everything. That's exactly my thought: is that every single post is the same as far as voice. Yeah. yeah. So we have them in it too. Well, I'll just say I think it's important to know that this website originated in Boston, and it's the same kind of assholery i think i see from boston people fairly frequently <laughs> um that, that's the reason that i could never root for the red sox even when they uh weren't winning ever um they still felt like assholes on some level so yeah i don't know that's awesome i, was, <laughs> I love that we just taking chats in boston yeah, I agree. I uh, I think there is something about that that is being exploited by the website. And I think that's um, Portney's whole character. And I, I wonder about the extent to which he is playing a character and the extent to which all of them are playing a character. I think it's really high. I think it's yeah. got to be high. And then that raises the question of, like, is that worse than actually being that character? Mm -hmm. uh, that you play that character so often and make money off of it. Well, I think um, it also comes back to, I get, um, I think that, you know, I'm a big believer in fake it until you make it. Um, right. And that definitely goes both ways. That You can be playing that character, but you can't play that character for so long without it invading some of your personality as well. Right. Especially when you see I, it being rewarded so much. Well, and you know, it's the, often the only time I hear about Barstool uh, is when he's in trouble and defending himself, just mm -hmm. as Donald Trump would defend himself. Mm -hmm. That's the only time I ever hear from him or hear about him, really, um, is when he has said something especially egregious that has made it into uh, above-the-fold type information. But... Um, yeah. I mean, it goes back to, for a long time, the only thing I knew about him was their uh, short-run uh, TV partnership with um, ESPN and how it fell apart because of his stuff. Right. Right. All right. Uh, what, what do you got for political engagement? So we debated on this one a little bit. We came out at a seven, but... I my comment on this is that I do know that when it's closer to the election they become a little bit more politically engaged and to be specific about my personal experience with that is where I learned about Barstool and where I encountered it most often in my life is when I was playing a lot of golf in that it was probably the number two website behind ESPN uh, for those guys that I was around to get sports news and kind of get all the things that Barstool is. Um, 
And so I know that around politics time, uh, there are a lot of uh, white men out there paying attention to what Portney and others are saying about politics. And I know that Portney went as far. It was a gimmick to some extent, although I think he was kind of serious uh, of running for mayor of Boston. Um, and he uh, he came really close to doing it, um, but kind of pulled out at the last second. So I, I give them some... I don't give them credit, but I acknowledge that they have uh, some level of political engagement. Well, they do, and it's uh, but it's often the snarky type. So, like, exactly. there's an article up now about you know someone making fun of Marianne Williamson from her debate performance, and just in a in an ugly way that doesn't lead to any any productive thing. But I do you know, the fact that they're willing to engage. I suppose we give them a little bit of credit for them. Yeah. But overall enjoyment of visiting? Um, one. It's so terrible. <laughs> it is. And so, I, you know, we haven't really, we've mentioned a bunch of bad things. I want to take a moment here and just run through some of the examples of the horrible things that we're talking about. Um, so we're talking about uh, blackout parties where they specifically encourage everyone to get blackout drunk at parties. We're talking about saying things like, um, the number one requirement is that you make men hard. Um, your entire career and livelihood is based on the appealing to guys like me and blogs like ours to uh, Sam Ponder. Um, uh, let's see here. They posted naked pictures of Tom Brady's son and commented on the size of his penis, um, to which they were taken to court and somehow came out winning from that. Um, they've sent their fans on other folks. So they've doxxed, um, uh, people that have talked about them in a negative way. Uh, most recently they seem to videotape a guy, one of their staff members in the shower who yelled at them and said, where does the content end? I don't want to get videotaped in the shower. And, uh, Portney responded, he has to do whatever the hell we want him to do essentially. Um, and so they still shared that video of uh, unwillingly videotaping a staff member in the bathroom. So um, also told one of their employees that she'll be too ugly to be on camera in five years. These are just a few of the many heinous things and examples of things that they've done. Which makes it a really sad place to be. Yes. Uh, and it, it takes all of like a few seconds on the front page to kind of start to feel gross. Well, and it feels like, um, and I think this is part of what makes them so successful, um, is that when you go there as an outsider, they're like, what is this? Um, right. You know, the number one thing is the stool scenes 217 right now. And it's a video. And if I were to open it, I guess it's somewhere in the neighborhood, 30 to 45 minutes of staff members yelling at each other and playing jokes on one another. And it's one of these things where it's like, I don't know what the hell is going on. And so I think they've in some ways created a culture where insiders like, Oh, I know what's going on. This is funny. And outsiders right. are looked down upon and we can just ignore and, and, and show them out the door. Right. Yeah. They um, also own a, uh, MMA franchise which is uh you know a reason enough for us to hate them even if nothing else was going on yeah that would be plenty for us to never come back yeah uh, anyway 
notoriety of talent. Well, so that's somewhat along the same thing, right? Of that they're creating these characters for themselves and they're seemingly good at getting their character out into the world and increasing their own notoriety. And so uh, I would argue that um, they have a lot of notoriety. It's just uh, they are literally notorious. Um, uh, although depending on who you ask, right? I, I know a lot of those guys that I still come across here and there that I played a lot of golf with are like they think Portney is like the I mean, I mean they like him more than Trump they they like his approach more than Trump and they think he's more articulate and like uh, takes what Trump is doing and puts this air of like pseudo intellectualism behind it and they're in uh, I mean they are so allegiant to that dude um, and uh, see see nothing wrong with his model um, so they've got, they're known, uh, and that's too where I was going to bring up the ESPN thing is, um, again, if like you haven't, if anyone listening hasn't spent much time with Barstool, they were hired by ESPN to, uh, add their podcast to the list of ESPN podcasts, essentially. Is this right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they lasted one show, um, <laughs> and had to be removed and, um, uh, like all the way to like the CEO of ESPN having to apologize for this attempt. Of well, a lot of it came out of yeah Sam Ponder, who was who works for ESPN and is um, one of their NFL folks, sharing comments, including the one about how your job is to make men hard. Um, that was part of when those comments came out and when she made that complaint. That was what kind of soured the relationship. Uh, which really speaks to the tone deafness of ESPN did not expect that kind of backlash on some level. Right. Um, yeah. I will say it's been intriguing. Um, you know, going there, there's not the one guy I know is big cat who is on, does a lot of college basketball stuff. And so I know him because he's developed a name for himself outside of Barstool for talking about college basketball. But the number of these other guys that haven't developed that is kind of staggering given how popular they are inside right. the um, the realm, so to right. speak. Right. Um, well, and so the relationship with advertising is actually not all that different than some of the other sites we've looked at, right? No, I mean, it's not fun, but it's not as bad as it could be in some ways. Right. Um, and so it's, you know, I think we rate them lower than others because it is worse than the ones we've looked at thus far, but it's, you know, it's not, um, we'll get to dead spin. I think dead is going to be the bottom of the list on this, but, yeah. um, it's not that bad. Um, yeah. the downside is that in some ways, part of what bothers me about it is that their ads look so much like their regular content and the regular content is so bad, it's just hard mm. to distinguish between the two. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and they fold them in. Yeah. They fold in some of their content in the ad space, which I find fascinating. But uh, And so it's no surprise that they don't cover a lot of the sports that we care about. No. Uh, uh, so we have them at a nine on relationship with advertising and uh two on coverage and non-mainstream or what did we say one you said one one on that yeah okay yeah um and i i think i think 
go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, this is, um, I pulled up this piece from, um, that you mentioned on the New York magazine from Will Leach. Um, mm-hmm. and he makes a comment here about the people that read Deadspin as they were the people that growled when we mentioned WNBA having a new television deal. Uh, right. I think that's very appropriate. These are the folks that if you were to write an article on Barstool about, um, cricket you would be shouted down from the rooftops right uh, it wouldn't just be that it wasn't read you would actively be opposed in that space yeah and that they would do it with what i would call like soft bullying soft machoism bullying is indicative of who and what they are and how their whole model works right mm-hmm. it's um it's it's as insidious as locker room culture, but it, it, in a way, because it's not as blatant in some ways and it comes across as satire in some ways, uh, I think they carve out a little bit more space for themselves. But um, And I guess that's worth pointing out maybe a little bit more is that the way Portney's gotten away with a lot of this stuff is he uh, lists and describes the whole entity as satire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it creates a lot of legal space for him to say these uh, heinous things. Well, it's a good point that this is really, uh, I think what, what bothers us perhaps most about this, or at least me, is that um, it is, it's creating space for something that's pushing the boundaries, that it's essentially these guys that you and I both know that have wanted to say these things and didn't think they could. Now it's how to, creating a space where they can do that. Yeah. Um, and it's just really sad that I want to move beyond that, and yet they're carving out and showing how the internet can be a space that allows that to happen. Right. Well, and it raises interesting questions about sustainability of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it. This is where it like gets into that like what is the internet conversation I think, and what's next for the internet, and that will each article kind of gets at this is he was saying I was like supposed to know what the internet was as the one that was curating all of this material at Deadspin and Portney's the same thing, right? Like they present themselves as these people that know what the internet is. And if we've learned anything, it's that like even Mark Zuckerberg doesn't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't know what this thing is. And so it, is it sustainable? I think we put them pretty high. And my comment is that uh, there's always going to be space for idiots to appeal to other idiots. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that sounded really depressing. It is really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's just, you know, the revenue model seems to suggest it's going to work relatively well for them moving forward. And I don't see yeah. any slowing down in some ways. And I think it's also part of what's interesting uh, and depressing is that you look at it and you read their content um, and you're like, they're not trying to get any bigger than they are and yet they keep growing. And that's part of what's right. There's nothing on there. That's like, we're going to try to appeal to a new audience now. No, they know exactly who they're going after and they're laser focused on it. And it is still continuing to grow. Right. And so they've signed on with a major financier in the churning group. Mm hmm. So what did you learn about them or think about them? So very standard um, uh, kind of opportunists in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that they, um, 
they're kind of Chernin has been involved in a bunch of different things, has invested in everything from been involved in starting Fox News and those kind of things. Um, also been involved in a number of movies and shows like The New Girl. Um, uh, has started an um, anti-malaria nonprofit of all things. But really, I think it just speaks to the agnosticism of corporate America. Right. Um, and anything that will make you money matters. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he did donate to Obama and held a, hun- a fundraiser. I don't remember whether a fundraiser was for Obama or for Hillary, but hosted one at his house, um, which speaks to the fact that you know he probably does have some actual leanings in that way, but it may just be as utilitarian as everything else. Um, right. So it's a weird dilemma in some ways. I did not expect that when I dug into his, his Same. group more. Yeah, I was surprised by that. And they've invested $25 million, by the way, the Chernin Group has since they bought it and became majority owner right. uh, uh, three, four years ago. So, Did you catch that? It was Jared Lorenzen who put Portney and Chernin yeah. in contact with each <laughs> it's other. Such a yeah. weird story. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, oh Engendering of social capital, are they good for the world? No. Zero. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really, really bad for the world. Um and I, I like struggled with it this these past couple of weeks, and that's kind of what I was mentioning. I'm trying to write about it and try and put words to it, but it's uh, it's our central problem, I think, in many ways right now. Um, that we're getting better and better at noticing <laughs> where this exists and what makes it possible, and there is seemingly no way to fully undercut it. Uh, when those that are in power are those that are doing the exploiting and seemingly making more money off of it and growing more powerful. Um, so it just kind of sits at this place that's just really, really, really depressing. And it is, and I think, you know, it. it's just a good reminder in some ways that those of us, those people that understand how things work and have no um, conscience will always be around and be successful in some ways that I, you know, they're very good at what they're doing in some ways, you know, when we see the same thing with Trump, that when you're attacked, um, you attack or somebody writes something about you, you don't like you attack that person personally. And now they can't write anything else about you because anything else from that point forward would seem personal jab. And so you've removed objectivity from it. And so it's just a, um, they've mastered that way of neutering their, their critics and, um, yep. catering to a specific audience that is just really depressing and sad. Yep. Yep. So, Portney, if you're listening, um, if underneath all of this you're like crying every night, I want to give you permission that there's safe space out here <laughs> if you want to crawl away from this. But, um, if not, I hope you're not too hardened and can actually consider some some different ways of thinking about the world. But I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and if anyone from Barstool listens to this, he indeed will sick his uh, what's he call them stoolies. Stoolies, yeah, yeah. He'll put his stoolies on us. <laughs> oh my! Not that we matter enough for that, but yeah, indeed. <laughs> 
All right. Well, what are you paying attention to this week, man? Let's 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 uh, bring it back up here. Yeah. Um, Wimbledon starting up this week. Uh, Wimbledon, like the Masters, is uh, <laughs> caught up in a lot of really horrible things that are colonial and racist, and probably need to be done away with. Uh, at any rate, I can't stop watching it. Um, and I don't know. I think um, one storyline caught my attention, and I think there's more to it than just the storyline, but Serena said she would play mixed doubles with Andy Murray, hmm. um, which would be fun. Yeah. But it also, I think, just tends towards like, okay, when are these uh, – I, I think of the top four in men's and Serena. How much longer do they have, and what's next for tennis? Um, and I'm I'm keep waiting like the last four or five majors I've kept waiting for like a new look, uh, and women's is definitely different than the men's game right now. There's probably a lot of new looks out there for women's, but in the men's game, what's going to happen when these top four are gone? Well, and what would it even take for somebody to create space for that? Because in some ways, that's a media narrative more than it is a tennis narrative. And sure, yeah, um, the the narrative is so Serena focused and so Nadal, Federer, Djokovic focused that it's hard to imagine what it would take for somebody else to get in there. I mean, it would almost take yeah. what's what's the Greek guy? Um, yeah, it's so funny. Uh Oh, I can't think of his name right now. Yeah, but someone who's like made a name from notoriety as opposed to tennis to get in there and mix it up and become really good at the at the tennis right. stuff um, right. as well. So it is interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it, what about you? Um. Well, um, I'm both intrigued by the Women's World Cup, but NBA free agency starts today, and so people can sign today. Um. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that, just in terms of, you know, well, changing landscape. Um, but I also will say that the money questions are interesting in this and just how having a hard salary cap has changed this. Um, and it's not a super hard cap, but it is a very strong penalty attached to it. And so what that means for the sport is really interesting to examine in light of how some other sports deal with it. Um and so right. it's particularly at this time figuring out who has money and how to make it work and all that stuff is, is interesting. And also, um, the utilitarianness of it. I think that for me has been the biggest thing with Kawhi is that he's so utilitarian that it kind of puts me off of some of the other stuff in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think he raises an interesting kind of thought experiment of what would it look like if every year every player was a free agent mm-hmm. <laughs> and they like did a league wide draft every year or at least courting of these players in free agency. Cause in some ways it's like what he's doing <laughs> of like just looking around what's his best chance to win a championship the next mm-hmm. year. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully with something a little less depressing. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks for listening. Give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. And uh, we look forward to getting your feedback, whatever that might be. But please be kind. <laughs> We're not getting paid. Uh, uh, but uh, thank you for listening. See you next week. Thanks.